Hi, this is Jackie Fry, design ops leader and part-time sociologist. And this is Allison Rand, design ops leader and cognitive neuroscientist in training. And you are listening to In Common. Woo! Those were, I was raised on music videos, like music television, The Box, VH1. Like, oh, y'all yeah. probably don't watch this, but you know, growing up here in Atlanta, we'd watch CMT. Oh, so much BET. I was just raised, I, I, you know, I was also kind of a latchkey kid. So like my brother and I would just listen to music. So music is like, oh, it's everything. It's like something that brings me back to what feels like authentic, like in your, in your bones. Like, have you ever gotten around family and you have that feeling like, oh, right. We're like, we share genetic code. Like that's how I am when I think about like music videos. Oh my God. That's really funny. Yeah. I watched a lot of music videos when I was like young, young. And when I was in, when I was growing up in the city, it was, I was super into like the beginnings of all hip hop. So like, and my oh friends my and I were actually connected to like that whole De La Soul tribe called no West Jungle Brothers. Stop Bruce. it. Yeah, yeah. And the Beasties. <laughs> I have a lot of stories of those people who were like came in and out of our lives, um, which was unbelievable. Oh, but you're I like, I saw... have some connections to Tribe Called Quest. I'm sorry. I'm not going to let that yeah, pass. Well, <laughs> that was like, I would have This was dreamed. a very long time ago. It was no, pretty amazing. Oh yeah, because I was like, I was a super hip hop girl when I was in like high school and in my early 20s. Me and all my, my homegirls. Why do you think I have uh, earrings that say mommy? Uh, well, a lot of golds. I was month. doing it because of Sex in the City. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, hold on. Like, I don't think you know how influential Tribe Called Quest was to like mm. the formation of my understanding, like of so much. My brother and I would listen to Tribe Called Quest and I would hear it in his room and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I want I want to listen to that. My friend and I went to the live recording of the BC Boys show at that they just aired on um, Apple TV. Yes. The Beastie Wait. Boys story, like their book where they Spike Jones filmed uh-huh. them telling their you story. Were you were in the audience. It? Yeah, yeah, Not I was yet. there. Oh, so good. You have to watch it. We had Can I see that baby was my life. Allison in it? I wasn't. Would I like look hard? No, I don't. I probably not. Because no. you were in the audience. Uh-huh. NBD. I was. But, but anyway, music. So sorry, that was a that was a digression of like musical connection. But yeah, I'm with no, you. No, that's exactly what I wanted. You 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 opened up this morning um, and really brightened my morning with uh, with Prince. So thank you. Well, for it this was the simple conversation, formerly known as Prince, but you know who's counting. It, that was. It. <laughs> <laughs> I respect his, his decision at that point. Yeah, in time. he didn't want to. He he didn't want to. They weren't going to make money off his name. Why you can't own me. So I grew up on hip hop because I, mm-hmm. I had an older brother, right? So I grew up on hip hop. Everything I listened to was hip hop. I know literally word for word, Biggie songs, like oh uh, all like West Coast, East Coast, Bay Area, like all the hip hop of the 90s. Oh my God. Like I, you and I could- started I, it's a on thing. freaking Outkast girl mm. uh outcast i think like as i i out mm, 
outcast was out. and then obviously i grew up here in atlanta right so yeah mm-hmm. so you're in a mecca you're in you're in new york i'm in atlanta i was mm-hmm. obsessed with bay area hip-hop i was just obsessed with hip-hop then i from hip-hop got into you know i'm talking i was really young like really really young and then i got into jazz from a little bit of hip-hop influence like tribe called quest things like that and explored jazz for a little bit started playing the trumpet <laughs> like, oh like music God, is like a, a thing for me then i and then i asked for a guitar and my dad got me a guitar and i got really into like just like i got a little bit into like folksy stuff and then landed into like dead kennedys and went hard punk like hard punk i I think my father was mortified mortified but then he bought me a les paul and he like agreed to go on this journey with me and then so i just have the most eclectic like little music heart in my soul and i i'm so like of course i love you and like of course you have this like hip-hop history I have to hear more about this is everything to me right now I needed this it's so good and the sweetest thing I can like cap this off with them I also had like an incredibly eclectic music journey too after I went to like college well you know I had my whole growing up in the city and then I went to college in Chapel Hill which was like a super indie mecca and then I became super like into indie and that was a whole music scene with like pavement and whatnot um Jesus Lizard and yeah, oh, yes. okay. uh, and then I remember discovering my brother always listened to like rock and I and he's much older than me and I always hated it. But then at some time, at some point in college, I totally discovered Led Zeppelin, which I feel like changed my life. Even though I had grown up listening to it in the background, I was just like, oh, and then I discovered it in college. And I just remember like getting the box set, Led Zeppelin box set. My dad bought me. <laughs> anyway, but but. My daughter, Luna, who I often talk about on the show, um, is obsessed with music, of course. You know, she's like an every, not every, but like 18-year-old just loves music. Her father is Uh a huge, huge record collector and seller. And she gave me for Mother's Day um, and my birthday, which were all in the same week, she gave me two different original album pressings of Stevie Wonder. And... Oh, uh, an original Billy Joel glass houses, which I loved to do. She kind of got me at both ends, which is so cute. That's fresh. That's so sweet. Are you ready to do this? I'm so ready to do this. Okay. So let's do it. Let's have an episode. How about the net? We're going to dedicate the next two episodes to talking about design ups. Like this is not a podcast about design ups at all, but us being two design ops practitioners, uh, you know, we want to share our thoughts on it and then hopefully kind of place where the work we're hoping this podcast does. Um, how that sits in sort of our experience in design operations and what we do in our practitioners. So we're going to talk about design ops. So if this isn't your favorite topic, you just listen to go ahead and skip to, or go back and listen, <laughs> listen to some other ones, but the next two, yeah, episode 
This is episode 10, episode 11. We're going to dedicate to design operations. So current state, this episode is going to be all about current state design operations and like in kind of historical, like where has design operations come from? There's a lot of people and hopefully we won't spend too much time on this, but you, I think uh, one of our, one of our like ultimate favorite people, I feel like the story of design ops happened with a lot of teams going, um, companies going with building in-house teams, mm-hmm. um, as well as some acquisitions of a, a pretty famous place you used to work at. So a lot of people start the story with the acquisition of Hot Studio by Facebook. Yeah, I think it was Hot Studio, right? And an adaptive path yes. was acquired by Capital One. Mm-hmm. Which Peter Merholtz, Chris Skinner. Ones, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> And with that, they, Mm -hmm. you know, not only they acquire, they acquire the company, but they acquire their expertise. And both of those companies had depths of expertise in design management and operations Uh, and practitioners of operations called program managers and producers. Mm -hmm. And they advocated for those roles, which I always like when I see these people, I'm like, thank you for my job. Thank you that I have a place like I, you know, like as a producer by trade and really program manager for like other non-creative roles. Like, I'm just like, oh my gosh, you helped me have a job. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been such an interesting evolution, you know, of from that time to now. Um because producers have been around for a long time. That's part of the reason why we talk about it in common. This isn't, this isn't really anything new. And I've been Mm -hmm. a producer for just a huge part of my career anyway, in one way or the other. But I remember even when I was back at hot studio, um, writing some, a blog post, I think the title was like producer program manager, what's in a name, because it was, (laughs) they were always getting conflated in a certain way. And I think that was just the beginning of trying to articulate the difference of doing design management type of work versus in, in not just because I wouldn't even consider, you know, I know we categorize a lot of them as agencies, but when I was working at frog, it was more about like design strategy and consulting. And so when you think about it from that lens, when you're thinking about uh, what it means to actually lead program management teams and work with, uh, clients to figure out what an engagement strategy looks like. There's mm-hmm. those are the two kind of different functions of that role, right? Because you're thinking about how to integrate work that's not really necessarily about. I mean, back in the day, it was just like we're just going to redesign your website or like mm-hmm. whatever digital thing that you need to, to fix. So your internet will make. But once you started looking at um, how to solve gnarlier, more complex problems than it became integrated problems. Yeah. 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 That the, the, the problem of like tugging at the, at the hairball thing, it's like, okay, we're hiring you to fix this thing. And you're like, well, how are you, we actually going to fix that until we understand how to work together more broadly. And what does it, what does an engagement strategy mean? What does it look like? All that stuff. So I'm curious from your perspective, like when people ask you what you do, because I still feel like a majority of people don't know what I do unless they're in the <laughs> like, what do you say? 
I think that's why my dad I listens say, to this podcast all the time because he's still trying to figure out. What, what do we do? I'm talking to you, <laughs> Allison's dad, right now. <clears throat> um, what I do, I have a good. I say I run the business of design. I run. I help operate design teams. So I what run is the, design the business team side of design. Well, that's a different story. I'm not answering that question. <laughs> I'm like, go, go to this director. I start pointing you. I'm like, product design, brand design, marketing design. Don't design. you think All that's different design? Yeah, it's true. But like, oversimplifying you the business side. But of I mean, design. I, I, and I, what I mean by is like the corporate operations, not let's have business strategy. Like that's uh, that should be embedded in solutioning. But I think it helped in a little bit of clarifying, like, especially a role like me, when you have all these other like directors around you who are actually like craft practitioners, like my craft practitioner is in spreadsheets, is in like business analytics, is in um, uh, organizational like management and, and um, systems think, you know, engineering and things like that. Like that's what I am a practitioner in versus like, like brand fonts, like color theory, things like that. So like, imagine that like an organization gets so big and has so much work to do that you need to like drop in someone like me to help, um, operate it. So there's business operations. There's Mm -hmm. the sort of Mm -hmm. scaling of the design work. And what does that mean? We talk about that a ton. And then there's also actually just making a design team function. Because I often feel when, when a lot of these uh, organizations were acquiring agencies, they were acquiring design talent. They, weren't, they didn't really know what to do with the producer discipline, program management discipline. So oftentimes they those are the people. Them. They kept them, not all of them, but they did keep them. And, uh, mm-hmm. but I feel that a, that a lot of these organizations that are hiring more and more for design operations is they're, they, they say, we've talked about this again, we've talked about this, that they want to figure out how to scale design throughout the organization. But I often think they want to figure out how to manage their designers. It's just like, I have no idea. So that's a huge part of it too, right? I, you know, I don't like to your point, like, uh, I say I do the business of design, but also also I'm incredibly passionate about community organizing, you know, like that's, that's, right. I, you know, I could talk about that yeah. for hours and hours, right. but when we write the value of our design and writing like business cases for it, you're not like, and we have to organize and like help make the people feel a sense of belonging and connected and interconnectedness. And da, da, da. <laughs> like that's like, that's not good. That's not business talk. That's well, like good is it? what humans yeah, having I mean, human experiences cost. I mean, I would actually respectfully disagree because at the end of the day, if you're not creating the right type of environment for your people, then it's not good for business, right? Happy people equals better outcomes. And so I think more and more people are recognizing I, that. Yeah. Oh, well, I want million bajillion percent agree with you but i think that i'm pragmatic in how sort of the business case of design ops gets sold and um, performs in terms of like kpis like things like that and i think that's where i root into maybe an oversimplification of what i do but community programming and community like and and 
and just improving the overall employee experience for designers is like a third of what design ops is and something I'm really mm-hmm. passionate about. But I think like to say one thing like we're we're both talking about the work is doing that. That's the point of this podcast. It's the point um, that I think we're helping to illuminate. But the current state is a lot of people are writing jobs that are like all about, you know, improve velocity, improve quality, da 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 da, you know? And I think that's the, maybe the sort of business side of design that I'm rooting into. But the third probably thing you have to talk about is building community. So maybe I'll change my answer. Thanks, Allison. <laughs> well, I feel like it's, <clears throat> it's just a different lens. And so when people ask what's the difference between operations and design operations, I think that the lens of um, the people-centered lens is what makes it different. Because if it was just really about business and like optimization and velocity, et cetera, then that I think probably mostly falls in the straight up ops category current state there's it i feel like the questions we often get are about velocity tooling infrastructure um tracking oh yeah oh 100 that's yeah. where everybody's getting pushed for op, current state design ops yeah Absolutely. And I think that um, you and I like to wax poetic about future state (laughs) and the things that we love to think about. And I think that actually speaks to our level of experience and seniority, but the reality and where we want to go and where we Mm -hmm. see, and and we're we're future kind of, what was it? Growth mindset people, future thinking. (laughs) Um, But you posted your um, program management workbook in our design ops assembly Slack channel yes. and people went bananas. I told you, I mean, like, this is what everybody's hungry plug. for. So it, 100% plug because it's fantastic. I've totally used it. I think it's an incredibly helpful manual because at the end of the day, people just want their design team to be running like a tight ship. Truly to your point, they just want to make sure that stuff is super buttoned up um, and as long as things are really buttoned up, then you have built the trust and the opportunity to think about things at a, at a higher there level. There you go. I, I was like, I expect everybody to know how to do spreadsheets and a project plan. Like that's the baseline level of expectation. Like you're supposed to be doing that really, really well. And then talk to me about all of like the other stuff you want to do. So I, I posted the my the design ops program management workbook playbook you know manual whatever we want to call it um because we get a lot of questions about this and this is sort of just like baseline knowledge and i think that there there's just sort of the aggregate of information of this like baseline information that a lot of people need and are hungry for because as they write like current state design operations it's all about just like it, it, you know, there's like the storming, norming, performing sort of thing. Like a lot of people are in the storm and they're just trying to get to norm and that you could do that through just consistency operations, like who's on first base type work. And I think that's what that manual does. And to me, that's what you and I are, are having a lot of conversations about. That's why I, I open sourced it to your point, but like I... I did that because it's like, we're rethinking a lot about this work in design ops. Like we know it's not just simply the business of design. It is 
the interconnected community of design type work too, in partnership with other design leadership. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's incredibly helpful in helping people figure out the right ways to frame things up. In some ways it's easier to do it in an agency type of setting when you just have this one tasks, these projects that you need to attack, or you have one client with a couple of different projects. So you can think about it from a program level, but it, I think the combination actually, um, I will also plug uh, Kristen Skinner mm -hmm. and, and, when, and some of the framing that she has recently done as well, which we talked about um, and which she talked about at a conference and she's got these kind of uh, frameworks around the design management framework around uh, thinking mm -hmm. about how to measure the value of design and mm -hmm. categorizing it again in that sort of like people process platform way. And so I think mm -hmm. the combination of being able to use that framework with your very tactical um, ops playbook, program management <laughs> ops playbook. It's like it's, it's this program, helpful. boom, 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 do this, crawl, walk, run. Like it's, uh, yeah. I also think that we have to plug a design uh, or design for design work, which helps um, that Kristen and Peter Merholtz co-authored because I do think design ops sits at this nexus of like um, design organization maturity and business maturity that would need design to be a critical contributor to the business. Um, mm -hmm. So design org maturity mixed with like partnership <laughs> with design management, value of design, mm -hmm. and then tactical operations. So like those yes. three... Yes, three yes, resources yes, yes. right there will help very, you very helpful mm -hmm. so freaking much and that's probably you know if i if i had to say like what started me on the path of design operations it's like well one someone gave me an opportunity and we're like what do you call it and i was like let's call it design operations um like, but um <laughs> But, you know, the other, the other thing was uh, org design for design org, like so much and understanding of contextually what's happening when design org scale can help you understand like where to place programs or when's the right time. So like when I started design operations, the first thing I did was um, like just uh, triage uh, requests for like uh, invoicing contracts and budget. Those were like the mm. first tactical things I could see, like, let me take these things off people's plates. Mm -hmm. Then I moved into like helping run like status reviews or helping just, mm -hmm. you know, like scribe notes in, um, in a weekly like discussions around work because those notes ended up being something you could reflect on later. Um, right. Like we all have our stories of like, how did we first provide value? Um, and that's where design ops often gets legs. Or if you're a design leader or design manager and you're like, I really need like help because I'm having to do all of this. You're probably like, they could do something like what we've just described or something slightly different. But the next thing I did was scale onboarding because I knew growth was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like build an onboarding program, which I had done already in the past. So I was just pulling things out of like my, my back pocket. Your, but you have- yeah. 
you have such a different experience because you literally ran, you were a program director at agencies. You've been, you've been coming from the agency side. I've come in from this, from the in-house, like tech industry. Like I've never worked at an agency. Do you know, I don't know if you know that, like I've never worked at an agency. I do know that about you, but I think, yeah, I, this is where, this is the part that I think is kind of interesting. A couple of things is that the org design for design orgs is sort of the Bible, the only book on it out there right now. Yeah. But the centralized partnership model is an agency model and it's after having had experience trying to implement the centralized partnership model. Um, I can, I can definitely say it's way more complex than it seems to actually try and do because it is inherently a matrix organizational structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is really hard to make a matrix organizational structure work if you don't have buy-in across and from the top and you're not like spending a ton of time being really intentional about how like what all the different reporting structures and all of that stuff looks like so it can get really really complicated um and so i've learned so so much over the last couple of years of being in tech which is again really really different from being an agency world because things like work have building a cross-functional team, which I completely took for granted when I was working in consulting. Like it was obvious, like we always build cross-functional teams. It's like, okay, here, a client needs this type of work. Okay, let's figure out how we're gonna approach this from a program perspective, brainstorming that model. And then who are the people that we need on the team? And it was always, like we had everybody from, you know, from creative technology to uh to creative directors to you know the team was just always this kind of like hodgepodge of people not a hodgepodge but just this beautiful blend of people Mm -hmm. because that was the kind of thinking that we always even if it didn't have tech up front we knew that some way down somewhere down the line we had to be thinking about this much more you know deeply so we would bring tech up front Yeah. yeah and so going into tech and recognizing that these different disciplines are very silo. That's why, you know, mm-hmm. EPD, engineering, product and design exists. In a lot of places, you know, product doesn't even exist. But, you know, there's the engineering team, and there's the design team. It's like, okay, how are we actually figuring out how to make all of these teams work well together? So it's really complicated. Uh-huh. Um, Oh, and yes. so I think about it from, I guess sometimes I think about it from like a much more complex lens. You really, uh, which doesn't help me, <laughs> it doesn't serve <laughs> me well. <laughs> um, and you really help me break things down. And, and in fact, I think it's important to talk about, you know, uh, you talk a lot about like, when do you need it? Why do you need it? And do you even need it? Design yeah. operations that you is. May and not I think need that's it. a really important, yeah, you just may not need it. And, and okay. sometimes you hire for it. I think a lot of people are in the position of being hired for it when maybe organizations aren't ready for it mm-hmm. or they don't need it. You know, so I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, well, I think like you and I go to design conferences and then I'll be like, I'll see you across the room and I'll, and I'm like, this person's trying to like, tell me that like design ops is not a thing. You know, like people, <laughs> I feel like come to me to say like, I don't need design ops. And I'm like, 
cool. Like that's yeah. on you. Yeah. Um, so, and, 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 you know, like the, the, the one thing is design ops may work really well, like, and I, for some organizations and it may not work at all, but it's happening. It's happening. Somebody's doing it. It's whether you're like, it's uh, how critical that design organization is to sort of the, the, um, the, the, the operations of the business. And I think that trans, when you talk about that maturity going from like UI to UX, UX to CX, you're mm-hmm. going to see like people who are on that spectrum, like the later spectrum mm-hmm. of like, they've really developed UX and now they're trying to get to CX, right? Like as a, as a design organization and discipline that like, you're going to see, I think a lot of companies that are doing that, um, all of a sudden realize we need an ops, we need ops because not only do you have to diversify and really like have more people involved. Like, have you ever, have you ever seen those network maps of what it looks like for like 11 people to communicate with one another? Yeah. It's bananas. It's bananas. It's, and if you, if you've not seen that and you're listening to this, like Google it, like there's so many interesting things. And so you, you, there's all these lines of communication that it can, that you start playing games of telephones, but that's when ops comes in and whether or not like you have product um, operations or marketing operations, being able to speak the language of design, scope work properly for design, um, that's way different than scoping work for engineering. And it's way different than mm-hmm. how um, you would scope work from like, say like a marketing perspective. Um, it's just different. And uh, like, oh, I always like to say is like, look at the scope of what, like if you had to like write out what it takes for this, let, now put on your thinking hat, put on your producer hat. This is, this is the ask, ready? And it's drive-by or on Slack. Imagine that you get this ask. Hey, <laughs> hey, we would like to like maybe see if we could do a new loading animation uh, in an upcoming release uh, for like the mobile app. Like that's like five different design groups <laughs> that you need to engage. No. <laughs> and people, and it's like, and maybe we'd like to just see, can you do a prototype? And you're like, hold on, nice. like- can you just make uh, that happen? Can you just give me like a I prototype? know you're the person who could make that happen. Like, yeah. In browser, <laughs> can you just do it, or not browser, can you, can you do it live in code? Is that cool? Can you get me that like in two weeks? And that's like a, that's a starting of the engines type work. And so like mm-hmm. somebody who can go in, navigate that ask, make sure that the right people have the right information and that a designer can design or do their specific craft or practice. That is where ops can sit. That's where producers sit. Now, where do program mm-hmm. managers sit? That's in systems thinking to me. I think the program managers yep. go off go off and think about, like the analogy I like to use is they're putting plumbing in a house uh, and producers with designers and, and all of that, they're pumping the water through the pipes. And mm-hmm. so you can see where the, the, the plumbing and the, the, the leaks in the plumbing are, where things need to be fixed. And that a producer might know that sooner than a program manager, but it's when you have enough projects going through that you actually need to think about like creating a system, finding a pattern. And that's where program managers sit. And that's what I love to do. Although I love producing, love producing. It's so (laughs) hard to like, I do do miss it. Oh my gosh. You're asking me? Yeah. Do you miss it? Oh no, no. But I do oh, produce. Like, I produce anyway. I, I feel like, you know, this is the nature also. You have to, 
And I think it's okay. And I think it's important too. Um, I think it's important to be able to fly at 10,000 feet and 1,000 feet. I think it's yeah. always important to know what it takes to actually get something done. But no, You'll build I, the right system. I, I don't, I don't miss producing, but I definitely know how, and I definitely do it. But I, I, I just want to like, you know, sort of move towards this space or I, that what I find really interesting and I think it's good for us to sort of like wrap on this um, is design operations, the conversation around design operations, particularly in, you know, at design conferences, or whatever, in the, <laughs> at, um, design Twitter is controversial. Yeah. And there's a lot of friction there too, that I'm sure many people who are listening and people in this discipline uh, experience is the friction of, you know, the, this, this notion that um, design operations brings this like process and rigor to a practice that shouldn't have it. And then oh. there's the other side, which we've heard is that design operations brings the joy back into designing. Mm because you're removing all of the stuff that has been keeping designers from, from designing. designing. Yes. So, you know, I just find it so like weird and interesting and also like annoying, weird. you know, like a thousand different. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad. Is that it's, this is, you know, this is this ongoing back and forth conversation. Do you need design ops? Why do we have design ops? you know, all of that stuff. So, you know, that tension, that tension that comes with this type of practice. I, you know, I have an answer for this. It's uh, Read Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. You know, I love that book. We started, mm -hmm. like our first episode was about this and that the greatest creative artists, sports, like athletes, they use, they've, 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 create crafted their environment and they've made their goals meet their match their environment in order to become great they've they've created structure in the environment so that they can get to a flow state and that i mean i think the first like mission statement i wrote for the design ops team uh for design ops team was about flow it was like we are here to improve the fluidity of the design organization. And mm -hmm. if a design leader doesn't think that that is what they need, then you might not need design ops, you know, like, and, and I would say that that design leader, like also, if you realize you don't need community, like, you know, right. I, also I'd be interested to hear about like, the Boom. Oh, I know <laughs> I I'm get blown up on design Twitter, but I, I say this with like, I don't disagree. I don't, I'm not sitting here trying to say, I disagree that you might, you might not do design ops. Not every, you know, like, I hope that's clear, but I also think like there are, you know, nascent disciplines that are continue to pop up. That's like saying you don't need content strategy or you don't need service design or you don't need, um, uh, visual designers or, uh, UX designers or research or things like that. Like I can do, you know, like it's, it's just contextual. It's like having that agency mindset. What, what do we need to get the job done? But maybe ask like the harder question is like, what's the job we, ha we have to do? What is it that we're being asked to do in an in-house world? That's a very interesting conversation. Next episode we're going to talk about the future of design ops. Where are we the heading? Future of design ops. If you loved this conversation or like 
write slash down needed all it of desperately. <laughs> slash needed it. <laughs> and you couldn't write down all the resources that we mentioned. Here they are. Uh, please read the design Bible, uh, org design for design orgs by Peter Mayerholtz and Kristen Skinner. Um, the design maturity report that Envision put out. Great job there. And, uh, and Leah Buley, big plug. Woohoo! And then um, <laughs> if you want, uh, join the design um, ops assembly Slack group or uh, go to incommon.design for on this episode's page and you could download uh, the design ops program management workbook. Uh, open source for free if it's going to help you. Um, and then come back, listen next week for part two of Design Ops.